0: Somewhere yes. out there also is uh, a, a young woman named Kristen Dean. Yes. She's been wandering around the convention, is she? Yes, and, oh, right there. Uh, she <laughs> in our system and then worked on three, on four, which, well, we went down to the lowest budget we had. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She did three jobs. First, she was script girl, which is extremely dramatic. She also uh, was uh, in charge of props, which is extremely demanding. And then, she also, after uh, the wonderful Shelley Kay, who was actually Shelley uh designed and created the wardrobe, Kristen was sort of the on set border of a lady who saw that everybody's pants were pressed. And the she was working 17, 18 hour days throughout the shoot. Finally came down one day with a bad case of the flu and was off, I think, one day and then went back to work. So Kristen, too, is uh, uh, a definite member of the Fantastic
1: Family. Good evening. You're listening to Morningside FM, the podcast where we talk all things phantasm now the voice you just heard was of course that of the tall man himself the late great Angus scrim that was Angus speaking on stage uh, at flashback 2014 in Chicago singing the praises of Kristen Dean now I don't imagine that there is anybody uh, within the phantasm community who hasn't heard of Kristen. Uh, but just in case, here's a little excerpt from uh, Dustin McNeil's wonderful uh, Phantasm-exhumed Unauthorised Companion. He's talking about the production of Phantasm 2 here. In a bold move, Coscarelli and Quesada hired a handful of qualified Phantasm fans as crew members. Having befriended Angus Scrim and Reggie Bannister years earlier, recent Stanford graduate Kristen Deem was a natural pick for crew member, and had a hand in everything from casting to hearse wrangling. Although hired as production assistant, her final credits were as storyboard artist and unit publicist. I love the idea that one could go from being a diehard Phantasm fan to a hearse wrangler. I'm sure it's not as glamorous as it sounds, but it sounds wonderful um, Anyway, I when I decided that I wanted to dedicate an episode of Morningside FM solely to the fandom That's P-H-A-N-D-O-M, obviously uh, The first person I thought to contact was, of course, Kristen Dean uh, Now... Kristen got back to me almost immediately and I was incredibly touched uh, and initially said no (laughs) as uh, she unfortunately is hearing impaired and therefore uh, struggles with, with video calls, uh, and as we are separated by the Atlantic, and I don't have any dimension forks to hand, uh, an in-person interview uh, was looking unlikely, but I said to her, well, how about if I just email you some questions, and and you get back to me, and I'll, I'll read them out on the show, um, and Kristen not only replied to my email, but, but gave me so much insight uh, into not just her perception of the films, but the, the making of the sequels that she was involved with herself, it's been incredible to the point where I, I'm glad we we didn't just have a, a Zoom interview now um, I think what what she's given me is is so much more and has meant so much more to me. Uh, so I hope you'll bear with me. It's a bit of an, an unusual episode today in that I'm on my own, not in spirit, <laughs> but I'm on my own in the sense that there is nobody sat next to me. Uh, but what I do have uh, is a stack of papers for, I I printed off everything Kristen sent to me. So if you will allow me, uh, to, to read these answers on her behalf, um, I just, I wanted to speak to that person who, as a 14 year old fan, um, reached out to Angus, who wanted to, to write to the tall man, um, and yeah, and ask her about her, uh, what, what that led to and her experiences. But um, I began my questions, as I always do with every guest I have on the podcast, by asking when and where Kristen saw the original Phantasm. She wrote to me to say, I snuck into a screening of Phantasm right before midnight on Friday, June 15th, 1979. That date has been such an important marker in my life. I stood in the AMC theatre lobby at Rockaway Town Square in New Jersey, staring at their illuminated Phantasm 1 sheet. I didn't realise in that moment that my life had started to change. I knew nothing about the film and hadn't seen trailers on TV. My father was out of cash. This was long before there were ATMs, He was busy scoping out Theatre One entrance to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The ushers were really vigilant about that film, because Rocky Horror audiences were such a rowdy crowd, sneaking in water pistols, rice, lighters, toilet paper, confetti. Meanwhile, I was still in the AMC lobby, fixated by the Avco Embassy poster of Phantasm, staring into the glowing red eyes of the tall man, entranced by his knowing smirk. I was truly puzzled by all the bizarre images in Joe Smith's artwork. I just knew I had to see this film. So I snuck down this long, dark corridor to Theatre Six. In my memory, there were even a few tiny cobwebs hanging from the glowing white sign over the door. It said, Phantasm, in black letters. I had no idea what that word even meant. I found a seat towards the back and scrunched down so ushers wouldn't see me and waited for my father. The first thing I saw on screen were those creepy red letters. Phantasm, followed by a Nighttime shot of Morningside Vaguely I recalled seeing the Mansion on the late night movie Burnt Offerings So there was instantly a sense of Foreboding about the place The next shot was a cemetery at night The sound of crickets, then a sex Scene with Tommy, oh jeez I was freaking out, looking around in Terror for ushers, because I was only 14 Years old, unaccompanied by an Adult at that moment, and I was certain I was going to get busted for sneaking into A porn film But then the lady suddenly stabbed her lover, and she turned into a man, a very malevolent-looking man, the same one I'd been staring at at the poster. There followed another ominous shot of Morningside, and that was that. I was hooked. My eyes were so huge, I was absolutely stunned. I was paralysed in my seat, my mind spinning with wonder and questions. My dad sidled up to me, apologetically whispering that we couldn't get into Rocky Horror. "'Do you want to go home now?' "'No way!' I said. "'I gotta see this!' We stayed. That was the beginning of having my mind blown. By the time we drove home at 2am, I was humming the eight-note theme over and over so I wouldn't forget it, and then quietly plucking it out on my piano before I went to bed. The music wasn't the only thing that haunted me. I started having these nightmarish dreams about the tall man. I think a lot of fans say that they have this happen too in their dreams.' In my waking life, I saw signs of phantasm everywhere, cemeteries, jean jackets, tube socks, Bic lighters, Jawas in Star Wars that looked so much like the Tallman's Dwarves, good humour ice cream trucks. I even found that lunar wall mural from the Apollo 17 mission and wallpapered my bedroom with it, just like Mike Pearson's in the film. The whole summer of 1979 became this phantasmagorical trip from innocent childhood into an exploration of what it meant to grow up and face one's own mortality. The strangest thing for me was that other than my father, not one person in all of New Jersey seemed to have seen Phantasm. Seriously, that film had already disappeared from theatres a week after I saw it. Folks I asked about Phantasm would respond, "Fantasia." No, 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 I would groan. Not the mouse and the broomsticks. The tall man. I really started wondering if I'd imagined the whole film. There wasn't a single thing on TV or in magazines. I was so frustrated. But I think that's why I became so obsessed. I didn't want to forget this remarkable experience I'd had. Oh, thank you so much, Christine. What an answer. Um... And again, you know what what you said there about uh, the trip from innocent childhood into an exploration of what it meant to grow up and and face your mortality you know, echoes um, sentiments of conversations I've had with Kevin Lyons and and Mark Charlesworth and you know I think again it just helps to to be at that right age when you when you see the film uh, and I, I love you know the serendipity of it that you ended up there because you couldn't get into Rocky Horror um, oh fantastic uh, so. Like like many of us, uh, Kristen found that she was plagued by uh, phantasmagorical nightmares and fixated uh, on the tall man. Um, uh, but Kristen did something that I, as a teenager, only dreamed of. Uh, she wrote a fan letter to Angus Scrim, and I asked her when, at 14, she penned that letter, did she ever, in her wildest dreams, imagine that he would reply, uh, or even that this correspondence would lead to a lifelong friendship. And Kristen says, Well, that was one of the ways I tried to prove to myself that Phantasm was real. To prove to other people that there existed this amazing little science fiction or horror film. It was hard to even classify it. In some ways, Phantasm was more like a coming-of-age film for teenagers. I definitely found myself relating most to young Mike Pearson, Just like him, I was now having these weird dreams about the tall man. So I started wondering, who was Angus Scrimm? Was he anything like his character? I had never written a fan letter to anyone in my life before. During a family vacation in Kansas City, I found a notepad and a pencil and started scratching out this amateur letter. Dear Mr. Scrim, are you really as tall as the tall man? Embarrassing questions like that. I didn't know that the city we were driving through was where he had been born back in 1926. Life can be full of strange synchronicities, especially that summer of phantasm. My mom mailed off the letter, and I just figured nothing would come of it. I was just a girl in some tiny rural town in New Jersey. That letter miraculously found its way from Avco Embassy in New York, to Avco in Los Angeles, and then to Forrest J Ackerman in Hollywood, and finally into the hands of Angus Scrim. One month later, I came home when my dad called. There's a package for you in the foyer table. I picked it up, and the return address said, A. Scrim, my blood turned to ice. There was this amazingly long, typed, eloquent letter, plus two 8x10s of Angus in real life, and in Jim, the world's greatest. He answered all of my questions with such respect, and even wit. In my head, I could hear him chuckling as he talked doing the tall man's voice. And James Earl Jones was not the only actor in town with a deep voice. He wrote that his actual height was just six foot two in his bare feet. He was so personable and intelligent on paper. As I finished his letter, I realised he was no longer this scary boogeyman, but the very first celebrity I'd ever written. Possibly even a friend. I was numb with shock, yet I felt like the luckiest kid on earth. Even my parents were in shock. None of us knew how to proceed. Back then, how many kids struck up friendships with cult idols? I wrote a small thank you note and sent it off with this sinking feeling that this was as good as things would get. That my life would go back to the quiet day-to-day monotony of schoolwork and worrying about what college to get into. A year later, Another letter arrived in my mailbox, this time with a photo of Angus in tall man makeup, full of updates, such as an upcoming tall man Halloween mask by an Arizona mask maker and gold prospector. At this point, I knew I was now friends with the tall man. You should have seen the look on my mother's face. His letters were infrequent, but when they did arrive, at the most unlikely times and places, even Vienna, Austria, it was a most thrilling experience for me. Letters were always better than phone calls because of my hearing impairment and because letters remain. Things we say during phone calls are often so superficial and quickly forgotten but words set to writing are eternal. Letters can capture a person's innermost thoughts and manner of speaking. They preserve moments in time and place. I've kept all Rory's letters. Rory was his real name, not his stage name. They're all precious to me. We became friends while I attended college in California. By the time we started working on Phantasm II, it was just an occasional birthday card. By then, the notes I received from him were taped to home-cooked dinners he'd leave in my refrigerator. But always, even now, there has remained a sense of magic and hope whenever I open a mailbox. Since his passing, I've even had dreams that I receive a letter from him telling me how well he's doing and that he misses me. I often wonder if they're just dreams." another incredibly beautiful answer there from from Kristen and I must admit when I when I first read that um, that 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 section about dreaming of receiving letters for, from Rory that did bring a tear to my eye and um, and you're so right Kristen you know that words set to writing are eternal and and for that reason yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm so grateful uh, that we've been able to have this exchange and um, you know I've I've loved chatting to every guest've I've had on this podcasts some of them uh dear lifelong friends of mine others uh strangers who i've met through phantasm and have kindly agreed to talk to me uh out of just sheer enthusiasm for the films uh and i think everybody it's been brilliant hearing you know everybody's individual take on the films and 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 what what how they've interpreted them and what they've taken from them uh, but having answers like these that are, you know, so carefully considered and well-constructed, it is such a pleasure to read, and I hope everybody else is enjoying listening to them. Uh, so as Kristen went on to become friends with, with Angus Scrim or Lawrence Rory Guy, to use his real name, uh, I wanted to ask a now, obviously, she got to to know the real man. Uh, it's often remarked upon how completely different Angus Scrim was in real life from his terrifying on-screen persona. Uh, and every fan I've ever spoken to has, has had the same story about how kind and and gracious and 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 you know receptive uh, he was to them. You know, always willing to have his photograph taken or or sign something or or just listen to somebody talk about how much they love Phantasm. Um, but not everybody knew that going to meet him. You know, I think for it's it's a well-known fact now. You know that that, that Angus was this sort of almost kindly old grandfather type of figure, um, but you know, pre-internet. People wouldn't have known that he wouldn't be so different to the tall man in real life. And yet that never dissuaded anybody from wanting to to write to him or approach him. Quite the opposite. There is something very appealing and very compelling about the tall man. And so I wanted to know, again, from from the fan who was... I don't know if she was the first person to write Angus a fan letter, but she was certainly the first female fan to write him a fan letter. I asked Kristen how she felt about um, why fans have that urge to run up and hug this man who is so often the face of their nightmares. And Kristen said, My first screening of Phantasm, whenever the tall man was on screen... I was mesmerized. I couldn't move a muscle. The tall man was so chilling and fascinating. That pale skeletal hand slapping down upon Jody's shoulder was such a shock. The camera looked up into his harsh, angry visage. The way the audience went dead silent, and then there would be ripples of nervous laughter because people realized it was a gotcha moment. The tall man seemed even more alien when he was lifting Tommy's coffin into the hearse, the rain pouring down around him, and he's seemingly unaffected by anything. And then the quick glimpse of the tall man as Mike speeds by on his road-toed bike, the cruel sneer and glitter in the tall man's eyes as the bike crashes, and you realise the tall man has somehow caused the crash. What kept going through my mind was what manner of creature was the tall man, and what the heck was he up to? Coscarelli was brilliant in slowly giving us hints But only enough to keep us continually guessing Which is exactly what young Mike was thinking too You know something is very wrong with both Morningside and its proprietor But you don't know why All of that was edge-of-the-seat captivation Things just kept getting weirder In broad daylight, in his tiny western town Mike is strolling down Main Street And you can see townsfolk behind him Everything is so normal But then, it's like the world goes completely silent, almost like Mike is in a slightly altered dimension. There's no people around except for Reggie prepping his ice cream truck, and Reggie is moving so slowly. In the distance is this strange clacking sound, and it takes a few moments for Mike to realise he's hearing Boots rhythmically striking a boardwalk. And the tall man materialises, as if he's come from some other dimension. His long stride so determined, his face almost expressionless. He moves in such an inhuman way, almost like a ghost. But there's also this sense of menace about him, too. He doesn't belong here in the sunlight, on that street. His being there seems almost predatory. I remember sitting in my seat, not blinking, not even breathing. It was such an amazing scene. Mike is stunned, too, the way his mouth hangs open, the cherry tootsie pop completely forgotten. By the way, as a fan, it's required gear to have one of those in hand, or in your jean pocket. I was stunned by how Reggie never once notices the tall man. This made me wonder, if only Mike was the one seeing the mortician. Was there something special about Mike that gave him this ability, or was it that the tall man was some dark entity, perhaps the angel of death, and that only people who are next on his list see him? All of these thoughts were tumbling through my mind, a mix of dread and fascination at the way the tall man slowly turns, sensing Mike, his eyes searching. The way the cool mist is billowing around him, such a beautiful, wonderful scene. I didn't start breathing again until Mike's character did on screen. No other film has transfixed me so utterly as that scene. Shortly after seeing Phantasm when I visited Los Angeles to lunch with Angus for the very first time, my Uncle Larry started calling out to me, ''Hey, hey, watch this!'' and he would start doing that long stride down the sidewalk just to tease me, totally crack me up. They tried hard to duplicate this scene with Reverend Kane at the mall, appearing in front of Carol Ann in Poltergeist 2. So, yes, the tall man is a magnificent character, Don's cinematography and editorial pacing gave the tall man such cinematic presence, and Angus Scrimm's stunning acting truly created one of the most indelible screen horrors I've ever seen on screen. You ask a great question, though. I was terrified by the tall man. So why were fans so attracted to him as well? First, I loved that he dressed and carried himself with such dignity. There was something very distinguished and self-assured about the tall man, like Dracula. Also, he wasn't a mindless killer. I was never clear that his hunting Mike was to kill Mike. He seemed fascinated by the boy, as though maybe Mike was not supposed to be aware of the tall man, that there was some connection between the two of them. Angus often remarked about how there was almost a respect from the tall man towards this spunky kid. There is even a sense of humor in the tall man, much like a cat toying with a mouse, but as though he's having great fun with the chase. And this gives the tall man a touch of humanity. Maybe he'll be merciful. Even when he captures Mike, he doesn't kill him. He takes him to Morningside to do God knows what. So there's this mix of wonder and terror in the audience. And I think that subtly started to change how we felt about the tall man subconsciously. I don't think it was just me. But I started to feel like I was in on the joke or the chase with the tall man. That it was some sort of game, but maybe not just one of death. I still can't explain why, but by the end of Phantasm, when the tall man plunges down that mine shaft, I feel relief, but also sadness. I really didn't want to see him go. Much like the classic monsters, by the end of Dracula or Frankenstein, you feel almost sorry for the monsters, that they have to die. I remember when I first met Angus in person in 1981, he had invited me and my family to lunch with him when we were in California. I was waiting for him in the corridor of the Ambassador Hotel. I was all alone at the moment, while my family waited inside the hotel coffee shop. I kept staring at the glass entrance doors. There was this moment when all the people around me suddenly seemed to have disappeared. It got so quiet, almost like I'd lost my hearing. There was this hush, this sense of entering some other state of reality, just like that scene in Phantasm— I was trembling with nervousness, debating with myself whether to stay or just flee, seriously. And suddenly there was this huge shadow on the other side of the glass doors which slid open. This very tall man in a suit came striding down the corridor, very much in a rush but with that strange lope of the tall man. I just stopped breathing. He came right up to me. I was too paralysed to even move and stopped abruptly. He was staring down at me with this stern look and my voice was quavering are you, are you Mr. Angus Scrim? I was so terrified in that moment of him, but immediately he whipped off his glasses and the biggest smile broke across his face. Ah, Miss Deem, how nice to meet you. And just like that, he went from the tall man to this really sweet, amiable gentleman. I was still in shock because he looked so intimidating, but I somehow managed to shake his hand. He had the warmest voice and reassuring smile. "'I think my first encounter was very much what it was like for a lot of fans. "'They really want to meet him, but they're so intimidated by him. "'But then they hear his soft tenor voice, "'not the deep growl of the tall man, "'and they see this twinkle in his eye. "'He becomes like this kindly grandfather in that moment. "'Plus the way he was so personable "'and would turn the conversation to being all about the person before him. "'He was so warm and caring, wanting so much to get to know his fans. "'It was a gift.' And for fans, I think there was always this rush of relief and amazement to find that something they'd feared so much was instantly a best friend. It didn't take long for fans, both men and women, to ask to hug him. Fear turned to love. I loved to stand nearby and just watch. I think it gave fans so much joy, and Angus too. He could never understand how all these people wanted to hug him. But it was incredibly healing for him too, Bless him for sharing such moments with us all. He never let fame go to his head either. He was always such a gentleman in public. He is so dearly missed. Another fantastic answer there. And I love the idea that um, only those who are fated to die next can can see the tall man making him like some kind of male banshee. Or even a female banshee, (laughs) if he's in uh, Lady and Lavender guise. And you're right, um... Of course, Reverend Kane in, uh, in Poltergeist 2, very, very reminiscent of the tall man. Um, although I must say that scene, especially when the person in the, in the mall walks through him as Carol looking back, it really traumatised me when I was younger. Um, I'm not sure that's a film character I would have wanted to run up and hugged, uh, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> and you say, fear turned to love. What a brilliant uh, phrase there. Um It often gets a bit uh, soppy on this podcast, Uh, especially my conversation with uh, Kevin Lyons (laughs) about uh, it being uh, the original, being about a film about three guys who love each other. But um, it's inevitable with Phantasm. I think there is, you know, such, such warmth, um, not just in the films themselves, uh, but in the community. And I think, uh, you know, uh, Kristen's correspondence with me and her patience with with all my questions uh, only goes to to highlight that and what a wonderful thing this franchise is for not just for its you know its catharsis and its entertainment but for for bringing people together um now i uh I've referred to Kristen previously uh on this podcast in in the in the last episode I think when I was talking to Zoe Swan about phantasm and feminism uh, and I described uh, Kristen as the world's biggest phantasm fan. Uh although as you heard from the tall man himself in, at the beginning of this episode Angus uh you know describes Kristen as a member of the, the phantasm family. So I apologise for her, in a sense, for including her uh, on an episode about fandom. When you know this is a person who who worked on uh, the the second, third, and fourth films uh, as crew, uh, but nevertheless, you know, it, it, I re- as I said, I wanted to to speak to the person who wrote that that fan letter to Angus at fourteen. Uh, but I asked her if she could tell me a little bit about the process of passing through the dimensional fork from the world of fandom and into the phantasm family itself. Uh, Kristen says, first and foremost, I will always label myself a phantasm fan. I don't ever want to become prideful about the miraculous things that have happened to me. I don't want to label myself as family because I'm still me. My head full of awesome memories, which I owe to incredible people that came into my life. And to God, who must have quite the sense of humour, and possibly even to some entity out there whom we call the Tall Man, who has had me in his clutches ever since. Some nights, when I can't sleep, I stare up at the ceiling and wonder if I'm going to wake up like Mike with someone assuring me, hey, you had a dream, just a nightmare. Hmm, actually, that would suck. My life has never been a nightmare. But this gives you an idea how surreal it feels to look back at these past four decades. So... I am very blessed to be a fan, and be surrounded by the brilliant people that comprise the fandom, fan with a PH. All the incredible things that happened were because a small-town kid with a big imagination stumbled unknowingly into the world of phantasm one midnight. I never imagined myself on this life path. Sometimes I wonder who I would have become had Angus never received my letter. Everything that followed because of his friendship, was it luck, was it fate, was it love, Did I change things in Angus's life? In the storyline of Phantasm through script doctoring? In the lives of other fans who themselves went on to work on the franchise? It's pretty overwhelming to ponder such things. I feel awe and so very, very humbled. Am I the world's biggest fan? No, I don't think I deserve that honour because there are so many other fans who came before me. Phantasm opened in March 1979, but because of limited prints, the film reels didn't make their way to New Jersey until June 1st, 1979. So that's a lot of people that saw this movie before me. Many of those folks have amassed such incredible collections, or they have poured so much of their creative genius into all things Phantasm. Each of these people have added a little more magic to the universe of Phantasm. We all deserve the title of Biggest Fan because that's the size of our hearts, our love for this incredible world Don Coscarelli has created. We're all part of this unique, mind-bending film, and I consider us all to be a family. If I had a title, I guess it would have been Biggest Angus Scrim Fan. Maybe there's someone out there who's even bigger. I doubt that, Kristen. <laughs> she goes on to say, But Angus was the catalyst that set everything in motion. He responded to my letter. He kept writing me and encouraging me through the decades. He gave me confidence in myself and the courage to try things I never could have done alone. Ultimately, I think I became an ambassador to Phantasm, along with Guy Thorpe, because for years he and I made a concerted effort to reach out to fans across the world, answer their questions, give them location tours and put them in touch with the cast and crew. This would have been back in the 80s and 90s, long before the internet. For example... I spent so much time and money on behalf of Angus, forwarding their letters to him, creating photos and resumes for him to share, and mailing stuff back to them without ever letting Angus pay. I did this without even thinking about it, because I had been so lucky to have Avco Embassy and Fari Ackerman forward my letter to Angus. The kindness of others turned a shy, hearing-impaired 14-year-old's life completely around. That kind of luck yearns to be shared. Pay it forward. There is an incredible sense of pleasure to do the same for others and to see their joy. You get to re-experience that wonder again from when it happened to you. And the lives I touched are nothing compared to what Angus, Reggie, Don and the others have done. Ultimately, at the turn of the century, Don got his Phantasm website running and took the lead in sharing online fan communications with Angus. By then, Guy and I figured that the franchise, with four films, had run its course. Speaking of the internet, once the Phantasm official website started sharing fan comments, I think something got lost in translation, especially for someone of Angus's generation. He had a hard time navigating computers, and the sheer volume of people reaching out to him with requests became kind of overwhelming. The electronic version of having a huge bag of fan mail dropped on your porch. In addition, emails are nowhere near as personal or special as a handwritten letter. With letters, you get a real sense of a person through their handwriting and care and composition. And it was important to him to take time in replying. With his background in journalism and his incredible vocabulary, he'd spent a year during his youth reading the entire dictionary, Angus composed the most thoughtful, eloquent and witty missives. There are so many people that admit they've kept all his letters over the years. The internet also has a dark side – not just all these trolls online pretending to be Angus Scrim, but also the folks that wrote asking for autographs, mainly his signature on index cards. They often had no clue what Phantasm was about, or even how to spell Angus's name. He once sent back his autograph as Agnes, as per their request. It stopped being funny after a while. He saw his autographs being sold on eBay. That made him pull back on continuing to sign things, sadly. But at least he still loved meeting fans in person, gladly signing autographs at conventions, for free. Fans had such admiration for him because he refused to charge them a cent. But then conventions started insisting fans pay for autographs in advance, and that was so frustrating for him as well. He was from old Hollywood, a very rare mindset in our time, where an autograph was a form of handshake, never intended to be a means of profit. Angus intensely felt that making a profit off admirers was incredibly disrespectful. Nowadays, actors expect, perhaps rightfully, to be paid for their time, but for Angus, the fans were giving him their time. He really cared about us. Now, about passing through the dimensional fork, how true your words. In 1979, Avco Embassy sent me a Phantasm 1 sheet. I treasured that poster. It was tacked to my bedroom wall for years. Entranced, I would stare at it, just as I'd done at Rockaway Town Square that fateful midnight. The one sheet with Joe Smith's artwork then travelled with me all over the world. I had it on my wall at Stanford. I had it over my bed in Vienna. It was such a source of wonder and hope for me, almost as though I sensed my future was through that poster. During Phantasm II's production, around December 1987, I was standing in the Century City condominium of Dak and Kate Coscarelli, Don's parents. I spent lots of days and long evenings at their home, working with them on publicity for Survival Quest, Phantasm II, and the American film market. I really liked Dak very much. He was very much a gentleman, just like Angus, and I loved his enthusiasm. There is this moment chiselled in my memory, where I suddenly found myself standing in the hallway just outside of Dak's condo office, staring at his framed poster of the Avco theatrical one-sheet. It might have been his first actual poster created for the film, as Dak was the executive producer of Phantasm. I saw myself reflected in the glass. I started to feel this numb, unbalanced sensation, almost like vertigo, as if I was being pulled into the artwork. My mind was replaying everything that had led to this miraculous point in time. I realised I was now truly living phantasm. I was spending hours each day at the Chatsworth Warehouse, Perigord mausoleum set. I was rubbing elbows with Angus and Reg and even Michael Baldwin for his audition. I was driving the hearse and the cuda to locations. I reached out and touched the glass with my fingers. I felt very much like Alice with the looking glass. I imagined how on the other side of Dak's poster was an identical poster hanging on my New Jersey bedroom wall, that if I leaned in a little closer to my reflection, I would fall through Dak's poster back in time to 1979. How wonderful it would be to go meet my younger self and tell her, you're going to have the most incredible adventures, kid. Hang in there, because it is going to be so worth it. I must have been standing there for some time because I suddenly heard this soft chuckle, Dak beside me, and he said, There you are, Phantasm's number one fan. He had this wonderful smile on his face. It startled me to hear this, yet I knew he meant it as a compliment. I felt like I'd just been crowned by Phantasm royalty. I was puzzled too, because I still had my fingers on my reflection, and what I was feeling was that awkward teenager who had developed a singular friendship with Angus Scrim. So in that moment, I truly felt like I had fallen through the space gate from 1979 to 1987 and into a reality beyond my wildest dreams. Wow. Just hearing your tales of uh, you know, Angus at conventions and how he was with fans it it makes me very very sad that I I never got to meet the man himself. Um as far as I'm aware, uh he never made any public appearances in the UK, uh not uh, you know, during my lifetime anyway. Although if anybody knows of, of any kind of phantasm convention that did take place in, in the UK uh, before uh, Angus passed away, please don't tell me about it, because I'll just be uh, filled with bitter regret. <laughs> now, in last week's episode, Zowie Swan and I talked about uh, Phantasm and Feminism, where we held the particularly that first film, but also the franchise as a whole, uh, up to the, the scrutiny of, of feminist analysis, and... You know what, we, we we joked about the fact that the film didn't bear feminist analysis, but we managed to talk about it for, for over an hour. Um, you know, we gave it some some fairly uh, harsh criticism. Uh, we pointed out some of its its flaws and areas in which it could have done better. But I, I really enjoyed uh, last week's episode. That was, that was a great conversation. And I think, you know, for a 40-odd-year-old film, I think Phantasm came out of it very well. Um, but obviously... Uh, Kristen was there at the very beginning, so I had to ask her, especially as... Um, now, she may have uh, very humbly uh, and sweetly refuted the title of biggest Phantasm fan in the world, and that, I loved her point about that title belongs to all of us, and that, um, that was quite touching. But, you know, Kristen was crowned the number one Phantasm fan by Dat Coscarelli, uh, so uh, <laughs> he's, he's Phantasm royalty, as we know. Uh, But I asked her, uh, A criticism sometimes levelled at the franchise is that these films are films made for guys. As the first female fan to write to Angus, how do you feel about such criticisms? And Kristen said, Come to think of it, why doesn't the tall man ever say, GIRL? That wasn't a very good Angus impression. But seriously, I don't think Phantasm deliberately tries to be a guys film. It was just a product of the culture of the 70s. That was four decades ago. It's been 43 years since I first saw Phantasm, man, that makes me feel old. The culture was a lot different for women back then, and my mom tells me things about how she was treated back then in jobs, with the handling of finances, things that just make me cringe. In 1979, at 14 years of age, my worldview was mostly the things I saw on TV and in movies and the attitudes of kids and parents around me. It was common knowledge that horror films were for guys, and romance movies were for girls. And it wasn't even that girls weren't discouraged from attending horror films, it was just really unusual to see gals in a horror audience, unless they were on a date. My dad was unique in that he instilled in me a love of horror. He took me to fright flicks, he read Shirley Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe and Alfred Hitchcock short stories to me. So that made me a rare bird for the time. You know what frightened me? The idea of going to a chick flick. <laughs> I lived for horror, and especially for science fiction. As Forey Ackerman put on his crypt, sci-fi was my high. I remember I used to beg my best friends to go to sci-fi and horror films with me, but they were pretty squeamish about it. I finally talked one of my best friends, Shari Simon, into seeing Phantasm in September 1979 on HBO. It was her first horror experience. I was so proud of her. Shari, by the way, who had already seen and loved Kenny and Company, was a fan of Michael Baldwin. I didn't know anything about that film until Dak Coscarelli gave me a VHS copy in 1987, and it was such a wonderful little film. It also shared a lot of the innocence of phantasm, what it was like to grow up in that era. But back to your question, why aren't women more represented in phantasm? Back in 1979, I didn't give such things much thought. In today's culture, it's easy to see that Phantasm's women are fleeting, one-dimensional characters. Don made an effort to correct this when he made Phantasm 2 and 3 partly appeal to a larger audience. Did you know that Phantasm was originally written, with a much more important lady character, Aunt Belle, Mike's aunt and caregiver? I'm not sure how much footage was filmed, but the aunt was played by the same actress that played the fortune teller. With that footage deleted, audience get the impression that Mike is a loner, fending for himself maybe getting into trouble at Morningside while Jodie is out hanging with Reggie or hooking up with various women. There's other edited footage that reveals Jodie flirting with the teller, Sally, at the bank his parents owned before they died. So editing out all of that footage changed the vibe of Phantasm from a balanced family story into a horror movie focused on just the male leads. Honestly, I think the film works so much better with its main focus just on those two brothers and their friend, because at heart, it is a story about a grieving boy struggling against a macabre nightmare, and his undying love for his older brother. Don did attempt to even the gender gap with the sequel. During my first job interview with Don and Robert, I was left by a hotel pool with the script of Phantasm II, and told to read the whole thing before I left, which of course I did, because I'd waited nearly a decade to hold that script in my hands. Trembling hands, I admit, because I was so thrilled and nervous. What really struck me was this new main character, Liz. She was a girl-next-door type, but also gifted with psychic powers like Mike Pearson. I had such respect for Coscarelli in trying this new angle. It was so different, seeing Mike no longer alone, no longer scoffed at for experiencing things that no one else seemed to see. He now had an equal who just happened to be a young woman. What a wonderful way to reach out to women in the audience, right?' Paula Irvine was such a kind, unpretentious lady, always really caring towards those of us on the crew when the cameras were rolling. I remember that Angus was so protective and gentle with Paula. It was really sweet to see upon phantasm Two's release. I'm not sure that the character of Liz worked as well as we hoped; she was very likable, but I think maybe because she was still so much a victim in the film, the girl that Mike kept having to rescue it just didn't ring true for many women fans. I'm guessing here. That was still a common trope, using women as victims in horror films. That's why it was so refreshing around that time to suddenly see women as warriors in films like Aliens and Terminator 2. By the 90s, audience were really jazzed by strong women characters fighting back against the monsters. They were ready for that. I think that's why Phantasm 3's Rocky was such a huge success. Dom was in tune with what the culture now wanted. Audience laughed and cheered so much at glorious scenes. Whenever I see Michon in The Walking Dead, I smile, because I'm positive that character was an honorary nod towards Phantasm. Greg Nicotero of KNB, an executive producer of The Walking Dead, is part of our Phantasm family, so I'm sure it's no coincidence. So, back to whether Phantasm is a guy film. My first theory is something Angus Scrimm told me, write about what you know. This is what Don Coscarelli was doing. He was 23 when he created Phantasm, and I have a feeling he was mirroring his upbringing in Long Beach, California. I went to mortuary science school near there, and the area is something like the town where I grew up. The boys would all be in the streets playing sports or riding skateboards. If you wanted to see girls, you went to the mall. From Mike Pearson's perspective, it isn't strange that he hardly runs into women. Maybe if they'd filmed a scene where he'd accepted Reggie's offer to go on an ice cream run to the summer school, then audience would have seen interactions with more women. Incidentally, I drove a good-humour, open-top California-style ice cream truck during the summer of 1985. White outfit and coin belt, my uniform. I got huge crowds of children and their mothers around the truck. Once in a while, I would even let one of the kids ride along, sitting on the large ice cream chest to my right. They loved to ring the bells. I had such fun, and I also saw in my mind's eye Reg and Mike riding along together, completely in the moment. I certainly got a feel for what Reggie's life had once been before the tall man came calling. The second theory is that Phantasm was never supposed to be about 70s Americana. It wasn't intended to be a socially conscious film. Phantasm seems more like the fever dream of a young boy that has lost his parents, probably even his older brother. The film has this claustrophobic quality and sad, frustrated despair of a teen who is terrified of losing his only remaining sibling and idol, Jody. He's doing everything to keep his focus on Jodie's whereabouts, stalking him all over town. So Mike has tunnel vision. From his point of view, there is only Jodie. He doesn't notice other people around, just his brother and occasionally Reggie. With this weird dream logic, women in the film appear and disappear just as quickly. Mike never connects with them. There's this spectral cemetery siren. A witch-like cackling fortune teller that weirdly never speaks. The beautiful but withdrawn fortune teller's granddaughter. There is even the comedic maid Myrtle who, in real life, was the housekeeper for Don's parents. It was just like a nightmare, where people we vaguely recognise flicker at the edge of our nightmares. Our sole focus and inexorable momentum is towards the monstrous scenario that lies before us. That's the grim beauty of phantasm. We feel so compressed into Mike's despair and solitude. Even the idea of calling the police somehow feels futile. The audience feels what Mike feels. Everything is through Mike's eyes. And it doesn't matter that he is a boy or a girl. He is us. That's so true, Kristen. Uh, Yeah, I think you've echoed uh, the sentiments of uh, a lot of fans when it comes to this topic, um, especially that, you know, that the fact that this is all very much from Mike's perspective, kind of, um, you know, mitigates any criticisms uh, levelled at the film, you know, even though some of them are, are fair. But, you know, it doesn't uh, diminish our, our love or respect for the for the movies. Uh, I also love the, the idea that you've got to um, basically be Reggie for a summer. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Uh, I have, do you still have the uniform and do you wear it to conventions with a four barrel shotgun that's that's what we all really want to know um also i've never seen the walking dead so um yeah i'll have to check out the character you mentioned um i'm aware normally you know i sit and chat with people and, and then suddenly realize that that time is running on and i thought it would be different sat here on my own reading Kristen's uh incredible answers um but yeah yeah once again i realized that we're yeah a fair way into this episode now. So, um, some of, some of Kristen's answers I'm actually going to save, um, for future episodes because I asked her, um you know, certain, certain questions about aspects of, of the franchise, and she's given me such detailed and wonderful answers that I don't want to sort of, um, have to trim them down to fit into this episode, so, uh, I think some of them may even sort of spawn entire episodes, uh, of their own, uh, but for now, I will leave you, uh, with the, the final two questions. Uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, well, I read an extract earlier from Dustin McNeil's Phantasm Exhumed, uh, which, again, I'm sure everybody in the fandom uh, not only is aware of that book, but owns a copy of it. Uh, But just in case you haven't heard of it, um, it's a sort of companion uh, book. uh, And there was even a sequel uh, dedicated specifically to Ravager, published a few years later. It's a sort of... um, not just a behind-the-scenes book, because it's so detailed uh, in terms of interviews with, with everyone, really, from, uh, you know, the the stars of the franchise to the, the props people, uh, just, you know, e- everybody, except James lagro but <laughs> pretty much everybody involved in Phantasm uh, has contributed to these wonderful books uh, in some way. And not only did uh, Kristen uh, edit uh, the Exhumed books, Uh, but she also provided many of the wonderful photographs, uh, some from conventions, some uh, behind the scenes and some on set. In fact, the uh, image of Angus sort of doing his uh, trademark tall man scowl on the cover of Phantasm Exhumed uh, was one of Kristen's. Uh, And I wanted to know, you know, because she has a, a real talent uh, and I wanted to know if uh, her passion for photography was something that predated uh, Phantasm or if she fell into that uh, simply through documenting uh, her experiences as part of the Phantasm family. So I asked her uh, when she discovered that she had an eye for the camera uh, and she said, I'm really pleased these photos have such an impact for fans like us. When I took them, I was already aware how necessary it was to preserve moments that would never come again. I sound like a Kodak commercial right now, don't I? I can see the advert now, (laughs) Kodak advert of Angus turning to look menacingly at the viewer from (laughs) within the photograph. The reason I felt this compulsion goes back to 1979 when Avco Embassy sent me their Phantasm press kit. The right side of the press kit contained all of the written production materials, such as cast biographies, production notes, plot synopses, and film credits. Tucked into the left sleeve, protected by a brown paper bag, was a set of 16 amazing black-and-white photos from the film. Nowadays, press materials are so easy to obtain on eBay, but back then, the press kit was the only tangible evidence I owned of the film's existence and backstory. I pored over those materials countless times. The movie stills were magical to me because they evoked the same wonder I'd seen in the theatre. My favourite was a photo that always held my attention. Angus Scrimm is standing on an apple box, to make him taller, in front of a chain-link fence. There are galvanised metal trash cans lined up in the background, which were commonplace in the 70s. The scene was filmed in Chatsworth Park. The image captures the moment right before Mike flies off his dirt bike. The tall man has his slight feral sneer, his bottom teeth visible. Since the photo is slightly grainy and the focus just a little bit soft, this enhances its realism. The image seems quickly snapped, almost by accident, revealing a moment that never should have been seen. The tall man's eyes stare intently to the right, looking cadaverous and shadowed. His stance is so still, but feels entirely predatory. Another photo in the press kit matches that strange antique photo in the film. The background is Morningside mortuary, and before it is the tall man dressed in top hat and inverness cloak. Holding that piece of photograph paper gave me the impression of being a passive observer staring at a crystallized image. Yet there is a realization that I'm also clasping a moment in history, with the photo representing a genuine window or portal through time. What Phantasm does is smash that window. The photo becomes an amazing psychic connection. The Undertaker is now an animate entity, quite aware that he is being watched. He instantly reverses the situation so that he is the one observing you, you being Mike. You look at his eyes, and in that second, you feel like you can't move. The monkey staring at the camera in Nope recently had exactly the same shock for me. There's a fear that if Mike continues looking, he might be pulled through the photo and into the past, into that waiting, horse-drawn hearse. Shirley Coscarelli's idea for Phantasm II, of an even larger semblance of the tall man, coming to life on a movie screen, is very similar and so much more threatening. I'm hyper-focusing on all this, of course. My happy place. That's how engaged I was staring at those press photos. I wish I knew who had taken them. For the first time, I saw value in creating photographs, and just how powerful those images could be. Just holding a photo could re the cloying, haunting atmosphere of Don's remarkable film. The music could, as well. I was no photographer back then. I'm not sure I even deserve that designation now, not professionally. But the photos I created in the 80s and 90s do capture my passion for the franchise, and hint at the deep friendship Angus and I shared. There's a familiarity in his eyes, a subtle kindness in many of the shots of the tall man. He wasn't just striking a pose for a stranger. At times, it's almost like the tall man is shifting back to the kinder Jebediah Morningside. What I was back in 1979 was an amateur astronomer. I was studying college textbooks about cosmology. I assembled a small spectroscope, and I was attempting to carve a parabolic mirror for a Newtonian telescope. Each dusk, I was outside, drawing diagrams indicating the trajectory of planets and their retrograde motions. Eventually, I decided to attempt astrophotography. Unfortunately, the photos I took were pretty much a bust. My father had purchased this unique camera, a Canon TX35mm. It was more complex than a Polaroid where you just point and shoot. The Canon was all manual giving us total control over the focus, exposure time and sensitivity of the film. Then he bought a Barlow lens. We would insert these into a telescope. I took pictures of popular star clusters and planets. But every time I went to the camera shop, my astrophotography shots were never developed. The staff thought they were unexposed frames with dust flecks. I was so frustrated. It cost a considerable amount of money at the age of 14 to purchase film rolls and pay for development. And then not to see the result of my efforts... So, I joined a school photography club and learned how to develop my own star photos. And you know what? They sucked. No more astrophotography for me. The camera got buried in Dad's closet. Things changed in 1981 when we had lunch with Angus Scrim. My father took group shots of us and then we said farewell. This was the moment where Angus paused and turned to look directly at me. His face was puzzled. Wouldn't you like to take a picture of me with my signature scowl? I gasped, I grabbed the camera, my hands were shaking. I took a really deep breath and aimed. And then there was this amazing moment when I first witnessed him through the viewfinder. He was scowling down at me, and the sunlight made his eyes glitter with solemn intensity. The viewfinder magnified everything. It was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. In that moment, I was eye to eye with the tall man, not Angus. When we got home, I saw the final photo and was stunned. There was a keen intelligence and surreal menace that came through that photo. He had this subtle half-smile on his lips, as though we shared a secret. As though he were about to whisper, I have plans for you. Later. Like in Phantasm 3, That photo represents the moment my passion ignited for photographing all things phantasm. To be entirely honest, Angus is the reason those photos are so captivating. Whenever he manifested his tall man persona, it always gave me a jolt. It was powerful, scary, and incredibly personal. Maybe it's because it looks like a final moment before you die. You're numb with terror, but also wonder. In his eyes is a strange, otherworldly light. He's entirely present as he fixates on the camera. The result is a moment of him looking at me. It's just like Mike holding that antique photo. I'm looking at a photo of him looking at me. The image seems somehow alive, and it's always like he's still looking into me. When I worked with Don's parents as a unit publicist on Phantasm 2, I asked the set photographer why he seldom provided us with solo pictures of the tall man, and he admitted it was because anger scared him so much in person. Now, I'm going to take you down a rabbit hole with one final musing. After 9-11, when people were still too afraid to fly, I spent several days with my mum on an Amtrak train travelling across the United States. There were a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch on that train returning to Lancaster County, and one sweet Amish family briefly took me under their wing. Their mother, Emma, had travelled to Mexico to get an experimental treatment for the same type of cancer I had just beaten. I think she viewed me as a symbol of hope. One thing she said really stuck with me. The Amish had a stricture against photography, particularly if they had been baptized into the community, which meant were now committed to ordning. They believed that looking directly at a camera and having one's image taken was a form of pride, even idolatry. That the Amish loathed being photographed is understandable, as tourists were often a real nuisance by stopping buggies in traffic and basically just interrupting their lives, all for just a snapshot. There was a private moment when Emma told me that taking someone's photo was akin to taking their soul. That belief is profound to me. Our cultures share it too. Scientifically, humans reflect photons and even emit infrared light. Perhaps the photons get captured by negatives. What if energy is also a manifestation of our life or soul? What if taking a photo creates a permanent connection between subject and observer on the quantum level? A quantum entanglement bond, and what if even looking at a photo, or into a mirror, manipulates the very thing that we see, much like thoughts influencing subatomic particles in experiments? That might explain why the tall man responds to Mike from that photo, and why he's finally able to reach through the bedroom mirror to ensnare Mike. Just food for thought. That's me going off the rails. See what Phantasm does to me? Angus's expression in my photography conveys a deep real-life bond we shared for four decades. Seeing these photos reveals the talented and incredible person he was in real life, as well as the dark alter ego he could conjure. I'm grateful I've been able to create images that have impacted on other fans. I'm glad I could share them and carry on that sense of wonder I'd once felt with the press kit. Things definitely have come full circle. It's been an incredible blessing. Wow. Another mind-blowingly fantastic answer there, Kristen. Thank you so much. Um, it makes me wish that you were here in person and we could really delve into some of those subjects. Got a little bit Doctor Who-esque there, which is always a big tick in my book. Um, talking of quantum theory, which is something I know very little about, but there is, on that sort of subatomic level, there's that theory that observation can affect reality and, and you know, the, the way things behave. And um, it sort of, in in a very strange way, reminds me of um, a controversial opinion I have about Phantasm Two, which you know, obviously that that first film will always be my favourite, um, and yet for everything the second film lacks, uh, what really makes it so special for me is Angus and how fantastic he is in his performance in that film in particular. And I feel like, again, controversially, he's almost more the tall man in Phantasm Two than he is in the first film, somehow sort of more well-realized. And I can't help but attribute that on some strange level to the fact that that Kristen was there on set watching him and photographing him. Because I think that, she, you know, she has this real insight and understanding into these films and into that character and i don't know how much uh, her and angus discussed her ideas personally but i i do wonder you know for everyone else on set that was scared to take angus's photograph then you have Kristen there observing from the wings the whole time and i'm I'm sure that her her perception of that character is manifest in uh, angus's performance um What do you think about that? Write in and let me know. Kristen, what do you think? Please, please continue this discussion. And then finally, I gave Kristen the rather unenviable task of having to describe Phantasm. It, uh, as a film, is famously hard to define or categorise. So I asked her if she were to recommend that original movie to someone who'd never seen or heard of it, how would she describe it? Uh, and Kristen said, uh, You're correct. It's an excellent yet difficult question to pin down. I keep thinking of a 1979 promo trailer which asks Phantasm,
2: is it a nightmare? Phantasm, is it an illusion? Phantasm is it an evil
0: You have to take me home but why? no questions you must take me home
2: Phantasm is it a fantasy? Scare you? You're already dead. Phantasm.
1: Don Coscarelli was often asked at conventions to explain his film. Fans kept asking, "What did it all mean?" His response was always much like that trailer. Over time, he started to change his explanation. He sounded awed when he spoke about how creative the Phantasm fans were and how people approached him with theories he'd never imagined before. Then, in a recent interview, Don stunned me when he labelled Phantasm an interpretive vehicle. Bingo, I thought, what a perfect answer. That's how I think Phantasm should be described. It is whatever fans think it should be. Whatever way the film speaks to you, then that is your truth. The film leaves the imagery and the meaning open enough that it's truly up to the audience, their imaginations, to decide. That, to me, is true art. And that is why phantasm is so enduring, so endearing. That's why we're still sitting here 43 years later and discussing it. What's even more astonishing to me is how phantasm affects our dreams. As our heads hit the pillow each night... Our subconscious minds take over and cook up even more bizarre dreams which are often inspired by this special film. So many fans I've met over the years have been touched by these phantasm-induced nightmares. In your first podcast, and I want to tell you how very much I've relished your podcast so far. Oh, thank you, Kristen. Uh, She goes on to say, you had this wonderful discussion with Mary Wilde about phantasm and Freud. You made a valid point there, that perhaps phantasm is more about Carl Jung and something called the collective unconsciousness, that people all seem to be dipping from a shared subconscious well. And it's really true. I'm forever amazed by how so many people keep coming up with identical stories, ideas, even premonitions, and often at the same time. So, back to your question. Phantasm does present a tough subject to describe when I'm talking about it to other people. When I was a kid, my explanation went something like... Well, it's about this kid who's afraid he'll lose his brother. But actually, he's already lost him, because his brother died... somehow. So this Ice cream man is now his family. But wait! There's also these weird hooded dwarves in monk robes. And there's this gate to another dimension. I don't know if it's a planet with a red sky, or maybe it's hell, or it could be the future. But best of all, there's this tall man. He's got yellow blood, and he steals dead people... I'd watch as the eyes of my friends would glaze over. The more I talked, the crazier they thought it sounded. I was so disappointed, because it seemed like these other folks had no imaginations. For those of us who truly love Phantasm, it doesn't feel crazy at all. It's this beautiful film that only we seem to understand. Phantasm is so creatively off-kilter that, to use an idiom, it includes everything, including the kitchen sink. And a garbage disposal as well. (laughs) Gotta deal with those uh, interdimensional uh, bugs somehow. Each time I watch it, I never see the same film twice. I don't think I'll ever get tired of watching it. Oh, neither will I. Thank you, Kristen, so much for taking the time uh, to answer my questions in such detail and with such warmth and insight and humour. It's been a delight to to read them on your behalf. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed listening to your answers. And perhaps one day we will engineer a way for us to talk properly and uh, have a full-on discussion on Morningside FM. But for now, that wraps up our episode on the fandom of Phantasm. Uh, Although, to be honest with you, it is tempting to record a part two. Uh, Kristen is just one of many thousands of Phantasm fans, and as she so rightly and beautifully points out, you know, we all deserve the title of biggest fan, because it's the size of our hearts and our love for this film. So, um... So write in, let me know how you discovered Phantasm, what it means to you, how it's affected your life and your career choices, and who have you met at conventions and screenings. Um, Send me a voice note, I would love to make an episode, uh, a compilation uh, of people's experiences with this remarkable franchise. Uh, but that's all for now so make sure you're following Morningside FM on Instagram at PhantasmPod and subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you next time